Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Lawyers, Lines, and Money, the podcast that is focused on the legal, legislative, and policy aspects of sports betting, iGaming, and fantasy sports. Now, today, we have a very special What to Look For in 2024 episode with a special guest, Howard Glazer, who is going to give us the lowdown on iGaming, what we can look forward to in 2024, and other insights that he sees in this space specifically. So, Dan, I know that you're excited about this episode. I know you've been excited about these sort of 2024 What to Look For episodes. Can you give us an insight and an intro to our guest for our audience? Well, uh, Howard is the legis- he's the global head of government affairs and legislative counsel for Light and Wonder, formerly known as Scientific Games. He's a veteran of both the Mario Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo gubernatorial administrations, as well as work with Andrew Cuomo at, uh, at HUD. And he's uniquely positioned to give us an inside look, not only at iGaming and the future of iGaming, but the upcoming New York, downstate New York casino selection process, because Howard was instrumental in, I guess, writing or at least conceiving of the process, which led to casino gambling being authorized in 2013. So, Howard, welcome to Lawyers, Lines, and Money. It's great to have you. Happy New Year. Thanks, and Happy New Year to you as well, Dan and Justin. Thanks for having me. Lawyers, Lines, and Money. Love Warren Zevon. Who's the Warren Zevon fan that came up with that? I'm going to guess it's not Justin because he's, uh, I think, a different generation. He would come up with something a little more modern, Dan. You and me, we can relate. Yeah. Well, a, a, another inside uh, little joke on the on the podcast, our closeout. We have the you know, lawyers, lines and money is the intro song, but the closeout uh, Seminole bingo. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So it's about the Seminole tribe of Florida who inevitably come up in every discussion, whether it's sports betting or iGaming. And I'll, I'll bookmark that for a little bit later in the discussion. So let me start with some of your comments at G2E which is the global gaming exposition, biggest gaming conference in North America. And you made a very interesting comment that if you want to know which states are going to be next for iGaming, tell me which states are going to run out of revenue in terms of their annual budgets. Well, can you shed some further light on that and how that could potentially play out in 2024? Who's going to run out of money? (laughs) Well, uh, who isn't going to run out of money in the next couple of years? Um, the way that state finances generally are running. Uh, you know, look, iGaming, I there are a lot of different aspects to uh, the the pace of adoption of internet online casino gambling. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the associated issues like the impact on land-based gaming, uh, et cetera. But when push comes to shove, when states need revenue, they're going to try to find it in the least painful way possible. And that means minimizing uh, the possibility of uh, cutting spending, which they're loath to do, or raising taxes, which they would rather, uh, you know, walk into a locomotive than generally raise taxes. And internet gaming provides an opportunity in a business that the states are already heavily invested in in simply turning on a digital channel, which every other entertainment venue has uh, at this point in 2024. So I I think there's an inevitability about it. I think that there's really the the issue is for the industry 
how to accelerate this process of adoption in states for the benefit of state coffers and the purposes that they serve, for the players uh, that uh, seek to play online and really enjoy these games, uh, and for the industry itself, which needs the growth, frankly, because the land-based gaming environment is somewhat constrained, notwithstanding you mentioned the expansion of downstate New York gaming, but those are rare opportunities. So growth is important. Uh, we got to move forward. There's very little reason not to have a digital opportunity to play casino games online in the United States, like we do in probably the rest of the world, and like happens illegally today in every single state while we're sitting here. Yeah, but there have been headwinds around iGaming for several years. We've seen over the last five-year period, fantasy sports and sports betting you know, kind of lead the charge out of the gate with legislative authorization. We've gone from one to 38 states for sports betting less than five years. And for fantasy sports, I, I think more than half the country, more than half the states in the country have legislative authorization. And it's always been an anomaly that in a country with over 40 states with commercial and tribal casinos, that there hasn't been a corresponding spike in the number of states that have likewise authorized this other form of gaming, which is far more lucrative than either fantasy sports or sports betting. What are some of the factors that have slowed the pace? Well, you, made, you just made, good argue, made great arguments there for, you know, why the pace should be quicker. Why isn't it? Why hasn't it picked up? It does seem kind of obvious, I think, to those of us that are in the industry um, as to why it's a good idea. Um, good ideas don't materialize sometimes the way we think they are. I think the industry was living in its own fantasy environment when there was a mindset that sports betting would happen and then very quickly you would have iGaming pick up almost automatically for all kind of reasons that you said. And then everybody's surprised that that didn't happen. You didn't realize the money and you didn't get uh, iGaming uh, approved in more states. I, I don't think it's surprising. I think, you know, these are different animals. Sports betting, at least as initially pitched, was more about sports than about betting. The betting was an amenity to sports. Everybody loves sports in America or a sports crazy country. Everybody likes to bet now and then on it. And the betting is just a, a way to you know, make it more interesting and fun for people. And so it was seen as an adjunct. You had the sports leagues and the sports teams turn around and recognize that if you can't fight them, join them. And now they lead them and they're very deep in the business. I know this is something you talk about all the time. Internet casino gaming on a mobile device in particular is just different and strikes people in a very common sense way, especially lawmakers, as, a, as different in nature as well. When you have the opportunity to play casino games on a phone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's not like sports betting, which is a single event. Yes, there's a lot of events happening all at once, but it's basically event specific that you're betting on. Uh, as opposed to having this casino on your phone, in the palm of your hand, in your pocket, in your car, all of the time. And I think that we have to respond appropriately to the different nature of that. So that, to me, that's a fundamental thing. Casino gaming isn't sports betting, and they weren't going to roll out the same way. And then you have specific headwinds, if you want to call them challenges. One we mentioned, which is states have been flush with cash, and so you know they haven't had the need to go find new sources of revenue. Another is the concern about uh, uh, 
the impact on land-based gaming. Uh, the casino industry has very successfully spent three decades persuading state legislatures that casinos in regional markets are economic drivers that can provide jobs and provide revenues for states and the communities where the casinos are located. Now you come along and you say, oh, by the way, we're going to go online. And for most people, the idea of taking a business online their reaction is that's going to mean at least the diminution of, if not the end of, the brick and mortar business. How's it going, Macy's? How's it going, J.C. Penney? How's it going, Sears? Since you went online with Amazon, and so you know, people that have invested in casinos—I mean that sort of as a political matter locally—are naturally concerned about well, what happens to these places we invested in. What happens to the jobs? If you go online, don't they go away? And I think, you know, we don't have to go deep in the issue here, but let's, if even if you stipulate for a moment that there's no question that there's a positive effect on land-based gaming from digital gaming, you have to persuade people of that because it's not instinctive in any way. Um, so you've got to make the argument. And that, that's been, you know, a friction in the system. Uh, it comes up everywhere I go. We go to state legislatures all over the country. Myself, my colleague, Steve DeMassey, others that are doing this for other companies, we're there all the time. And that's the number one question we get. I got it from a governor of a big state recently who said, why would anybody go to a casino if they can play online on their phones? And you've got to prepare and answer that question, Dan. Well, in Mississippi, the, the task force to study online gaming recently raised that issue and it almost across the board. There was in-state casino opposition to having a digital channel for some of yep. the some of the concerns that you, you you alluded to. How do you even convince state legislators of, of the of the additive element of online gaming when within the industry there are some there there's some entrenched opposition? Yeah, I think to deal with that first issue of the entrenched opposition there. By and large, the casino industry itself, the land-based casino industry, is not just supportive of online gaming. They're increasingly anxious for it to happen as soon as possible because they understand that in a, a digital entertainment market where there are so many options available to people today to play online anything from music to games, any kind of entertainment, that if you're not online... Uh, you're not going to be able to grow your, your land-based business. And so the casino industry, and most famously when Sheldon Adelson and Sands did a about face on this, you know, they were the, the kind of the paradigm of being opposed to online gaming and they turned around and supported it and they're a big supporter of it and they're investing right now into Live Dealer and all of that. But you have some division in that the smaller regional casinos that maybe are locally owned, they're afraid they'll get their lunch eat, eaten digitally by the big national players, as has tended to happen with sports betting. And in truth, the success of sports betting has spawned some additional challenges for iGaming, both internally within in this industry and also because of the just the ubiquitous nature of the advertising. It's everywhere. And it's it's caused lawmakers to say, maybe we should take a pause. This thing is like bigger than we thought it was. So I think that's, you know, sort of part of, of, of the reaction. But on the reality of the impact on land-based, how we make that argument is really twofold. 
One is we have to show them the numbers. Um, in the states that are mature markets, which is New Jersey and Pennsylvania, are in enormously successful iGaming markets. And the land-based casino market has grown well in both of those states all during that period of time. And, and I think that Atlantic City casino owners in particular will tell you that online gaming has been helpful to them. Why? It brings in a different demographic than you see at the brick-and-mortar casinos. You have two different groups of people. It tends to run older uh, in the casino, and it tends to run younger uh, and a good mix of, of gender and diversity as well uh, on the online marketplace. And so you can bring in customers that aren't otherwise coming into the casino. The other argument, and I'll, I'll pause, is just also a common sense one. This is not a zero-sum game. These are different experiences. The casino experience, the live casino experience, is entirely different than playing a casino on your phone. I liken it to going to a concert versus streaming music. You know, you go to a concert at your favorite concert venue. They don't say, Taylor Swift, don't stream any music for two months in our state before you have a concert here because we're afraid no one will come to the concert. No, it's the opposite. Stream as much as you can. More people come to the live venue. They can listen to the same exact songs sung by the same singer. They want the live experience. And then what do they do? They go home and they play the music again. And it's just a different kind of experience. And that's the same thing, I think, with online casino gaming and live casino gaming. They do not replicate each other. They help grow each other's markets. Absolutely. And first off, I love that analogy because I've never heard that before. And I think that perfectly encapsulates uh, the difference between sort of what you said, that in-person and iGaming experience. Now, I have a question for you. I know that you say, you know, we're going to all these legislatures. And I know we've talked to a couple other people who sort of do the same thing, but on the sports betting side. And they say one of the biggest challenges that they have is educating uh, the yes. lawmakers on, you know, the differences. And like you said, iGaming is a whole different beast. It's very separate from sports betting. It's separate from daily fantasy sports. So what are some of the challenges or what are the, some of the things that you focus on when you're trying to educate those lawmakers? Well, you know, we want to answer the questions. Here's the approach I like to take. It's you don't go into a legislature that year and try to power over the finish line you know, the, the goal that you're seeking in terms of passing a law. It, it's a longer process than that. We've seen some in this industry believe that they can muscle their way into a state legislature, spend a lot of money very quickly, political money, campaign money, media money, and, uh, you know, by pure shock and awe, win a legislative victory. I think, Dan, you know what I'm talking about here. We can talk more about that as well. But it, that just is not how it works. In fact, that has a backlash effect. And legislators get nervous, especially in the gaming field. Gaming field, you know, still has some hangover. You have issues sometimes involving the ethics of awarding licenses and things like that. So you want it to be as pristine a process as possible. And when the 800-pound gorilla walks in, and starts throwing cash at you, you know, the antenna go up a little bit. It is much more realistic approach to do what you just said, which is education. Answer the questions. Acknowledge the concerns. I never go into a state house and say, no, there's no problem with cannibalization. It's just that's a myth. 
it is a genuine concern that workers who have when they work at a casino, um, that local casinos may have and the communities that depend on them. And it's very natural to have that fear. And it is fear of the online, whatever, eating the brick and mortar, whatever, because we've seen it happen so many times. So number one, acknowledge the concern and be empathetic with it and then answer the questions with data and facts. And, you know, that's the approach. Rinse and repeat. Uh, it's not necessarily a one year process in any given state. There's, there's, there are then specific complexities to each individual state. But that's always the overall approach. How do you address the responsible gaming issue? Earlier on, you distinguish sports betting from iGaming on the, on the basis that um, the betting is sort of ancillary to the sporting event. It's, you know, having a little bit of extra interest in the game. Right. The and here, here the betting is for its own sake. The betting is the whole point right. here, right? That's right. And That's so, the key point of demarcation. And you're creating yep. potentially more addicted gamblers. So how do you assuage policymakers that this is a good thing or that there are protections put in place to provide, you know, whether they be services, funding for problem gambling, any kinds of warnings, what can you do to minimize the risk of this, uh, you know, explosive gaming expansion? Because when you turn on the signal in New York state, it's going to be monumental. It's going to dwarf online sports betting. How do you provide sufficient comfort to lawmakers sure. with the problem gambling issue? Sure. This is another area where one has to recognize the concern and treat it very seriously. Take a state like New York, you have 14 million adults that will suddenly have access on their phones to online gaming. It's different than, you know, a few thousand a day coming into a casino. Right. And we know how addictive being online can be. So, number one, recognize it's a genuine concern and acknowledge you're going to treat it seriously. Um, but then also show how the protections are appropriate to the level of concern. Um, one point we always make, for example, is that uh, the, the problem gaming protection in the online market is much more robust than it is for the brick and mortar market. When you walk into a casino, you're essentially anonymous. You know, you can play with cash and if you reach a certain point, they're going to start to look at you, obviously. But you can sit there at a slot machine, you know, and play to your heart's content. You can lose a lot of money and be, you know, it can be quite addictive uh, for a person. If you are online, that is not an anonymous experience in the sense that you must register. You've got to register, uh, provide your financial information, and that opens up the door to the ability to provide markers of protection on the responsible gaming side. So, you know, you've got to treat it seriously. Um, there are, I think the problem gaming associations in the U S have done, who are devoted to this and care a lot about it, have done a good job coming up with model model legislation and in Jersey and Pennsylvania and Michigan, which are, you know, states where uh, the revenue, the revenue figures are huge and the, the number of players are huge. It appears to have been, to be managed and manageable. One does not see the fear that we might have had that there's going to be you know, major addiction problems beyond what could be controlled by the responsible gaming um, you know, efforts that are included with, with iGaming. So it's, I guess the proof is in the pudding. It seems to have worked. We know there will be addicted gamers. That happens. You know, there's addicted 
addictions of all kinds everywhere. The question is, are you going to take it seriously and provide the appropriate protections that keep consumers uh, in a place where they can res responsibly enjoy the product? Well, okay. Well, let's turn to the prediction segment of our, of our interview. Uh, you spent such a significant amount of your career in Albany. Please don't remind me. Don't, Dan, don't remind me of, the, of Albany, please, if possible. We're working with Governor and maybe soon to be Mayor Andrew Cuomo and with <laughs> Governor Mayor Cuomo. Here's a little, little uh, fun fact. You probably know this, but we could have had sports betting 40 years ago in New York State because Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo wanted to have sports betting as a lottery product. This was right. back in 1984, and I remember that uh, Attorney General, then Attorney General Robert Abrams, wow. issued an advisory opinion, uh, uh, essentially saying that that would cause a little bit of a constitutional issue. Do you remember? Were you were you part of that? It's funny, it, you know. Um, uh, I was there, and you know, the thing that drove that, by the way, was again was uh, was revenue, uh -huh. a desire for revenue, and at the same time, I think then Governor Mario Cuomo was seeking to legalize cat skills. Uh, casino gaming, but as you point out, you know it took another thirty years, just about twenty five years, for it actually to uh, uh, to happen. But hey, look, in terms of predictions, my my New Year's resolution is not to make any predictions because this way I can't be wrong. Uh, but I know you're going to press me. So what I what I will say is that um, the landscape of states that might be ready to move in the next twenty four months is relatively narrow. And the landscape of states in the, the couple of years after that is pretty broad. Um, and so, you know, what what we're seeing in this next, I would call it a 24 month period. Certainly, there's a lot of focus on New York because it's a big market, because they have such a significant investment in gambling of, of all types. And because the revenue return in New York on iGaming is uh, is likely about a billion dollars net tax revenue to the state on a three point something billion dollar, uh, you know, annual uh, gross gaming revenue run. So New York is a is a big target for that. We can talk more about that. Uh, Maryland, because of the study that was done and their need for revenue, uh, a lot of discussion in Maryland. I'm here in the state of Louisiana, actually. I live in New Orleans now most of the time uh, and a new governor here, uh, a very pro gaming state. So I think Louisiana is a place that we'll be looking at. Uh, in this next 24 months as well. I think challenges in other places, you know, you're very well familiar, I've seen you've written about it in Indiana, uh, that, you know, the, the three eyes that were uh, big targets for the industry, uh, Illinois, Iowa, uh, and, uh, and Indiana are likely not in this first tranche of states, uh, just because of other complications that are specific to those states. Uh, so I think we'll see them probably come around in a, in a second round. But this year, yeah, we're spending a lot of time in New York, a lot of time in Louisiana, a lot of time in Maryland. A lot of good restaurants. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, eat your way through all those cities. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, I, don't you have, yeah. I don't know about Albany so much. Uh, well, you have Cafe, Cafe Capriccio, although back in the day when you and I were there, you had Lombardo's. One of the great upstate New York Italian restaurants is spectacular. Jack's Oyster House. And Jack's I, Oyster House I, is closed now. I went back there a couple of years ago. It was it was like desolate. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. closed yet, but it was it was like almost on, it was on life support. Yeah, so, it was like the mu uh, museum of of food there at that point. <laughs> well, a broader based question that I'd like to ask is, 
the role that tribal gaming and Native American right. tribes are going to play in the acceleration of this issue, because there's a sports betting case uh, that's pending in the Florida Supreme Court, and there will soon be a petition for writ of certiorari filed at the U.S. Supreme Court by a Florida paramutual operator, West Flagler Associates, challenging this compact that allows that allows the Seminole Tribe to have a statewide monopoly over online sports betting. Tribes around the country and states around the country and stakeholders are focusing on this litigation because yep. it has the potential for unlocking iGaming, but maybe not necessarily in the way that's most desired by commercial operators. So what role do you see that case and that issue playing in the evolution of iGaming throughout the country? Well, you know, you, you are the expert on that legal environment and the litigation and the case, and I definitely am not. But here's what I do see in terms of how does tribal gaming interact with the expansion potentially of online casino gaming and the commercial gaming market. I think there's two different worlds that we look at. One are those states where you have a hybrid of tribal and commercial gaming. And we have a very successful model right now in both in Michigan on the iGaming and in New York on the sports betting side. Now, what I'm talking about here is these are states where you have both commercial gaming interests, brick and mortar, and you have tribal areas with exclusive, exclusive exclusivity zones as well. And Michigan solved that problem very elegantly um, by allowing the tribes to operate commercially throughout the state and preserving the exclusivity on the reservation land or the tribal land for purposes of iGaming. New York did the same thing essentially with sports betting and the New York proposal for online gaming would follow that model. And that model provides a way for what's in it for the tribal interest is they now have statewide access, albeit as a commercial entity, but they're guaranteed that statewide access. Um, and it allows commercial interests uh, to proceed as well at that point. That is a different, and you have a number of states that are like that, uh, you know, mostly on the East Coast, not so much on the West Coast. You then have a different set of tribal states that have exclusivity uh, in the state within their zone and nobody else, no commercial entities have the ability to run gaming. That we saw play out in the worst possible way in California last year, or the year before last, almost at this point, I guess it was, yeah, a year, 23. Um, and as you very know, you know well that that was the most expensive voter referendum in the history of the United States, conservatively $650 million spent by commercial gaming interests and tribal interests over the basic question of who gets to play and who will be able to enter that market. That was a challenge by the commercial gaming interests of tribal sovereignty, and it was a terrible mistake, my opinion. Uh, I told one leading uh, executive of one of the entities that was supporting that commercial gaming effort that they would have been better off spending their money uh, on one of our roulette wheels uh, mm -hmm. than they were in spending it on that campaign in California. If we're going to have online tribal gaming, which we will, because we know it works in Michigan and we can talk about Connecticut, which is an exclusive state, it's going to be driven by the tribes. 
at their pace and in the way that they see will work best for their tribal interests. And the commercial, uh, the commercial world will have to learn how to live with that. And they can. There's actually plenty of opportunity, even in an exclusive tribal state, to work with the tribes on, on gaming uh, content, gaming technology, if not the branding, which is really was that, that that fight was about. So I think we'll, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, do you see California is legalizing either sports betting, online retail, and iGaming by 2028? Is that realistic? I, you know, 2028 is probably, 27, 28 is probably the beginning of what I would see as the window for, oh. for gaming in that state, for internet gaming. Um, I don't believe they're going to be a leader in this. I think they'll ultimately... They're going to be very uh, deliberative in their pace. Uh, the fight last year between these two mammoth portions mm -hmm. of the industry set back that effort. I think a quiet negotiation, uh, like we talked about earlier, an education campaign. How will this work? You know, this is beyond lucrative for the tribes. It would create the largest uh, economic value for a tribe that has ever has ever happened in the U.S., uh, online gaming, certainly in the hands of California tribes. Now they have to split it up with a lot of tribes, but still the gross gaming is far outweighs. You know, you have tribal reservations in some of these states. They're small gaming entities. They're small casinos. Now you have access potentially to the entire state online. And uh, because it's so lucrative, that's why you see the fights. The commercial guys want in. But this will be driven by the tribes. These tribes must be respected in this process, must be negotiated with. And uh, I have no doubt they will come to a conclusion that uh, they have tremendous value to unlock and they're going to want to do it their way. Absolutely. And, you know, you kind of almost alluded to this in that the fact that the tribes are going to be able to see that this is the largest source of revenue that they can have. And I wanted to make, you know, sort of, again, get one of your predictions. I know you said you didn't want to make too many predictions because you didn't want to be wrong, but I'm hoping this is broad enough to where we can at least um, get a little bit of an answer. But do you see um, iGaming happening in sort of the same way that sports betting did, where you had a couple early adopters, and then yeah. once people, re once the states realized that this was something that they could really generate revenue from, then it was almost a snowball effect where we just saw an immense amount of states in 21 and 22 that really just came online and came on board and some key ones at that. Do you see that with iGaming mm -hmm. where there's going to almost be this domino effect at one point? Yeah, no, I think, Justin, you have it exactly right. Um, there'll be a tipping point and we're still in the run up to that tipping point. You know, you put all the put all the pieces together and, and they, they uh, it, it's a long process. Uh, before they they finally really you know reach their reach their breaking point and that's really where we are now if you look at this a little bit geographically also one reason why new york is of so much interest to us is that it's surrounded by i gaming so you have connecticut now rhode island a hop skip and a jump away pennsylvania on the other side new jersey on the other side don't forget about ontario that borders with New York. It's the fifth largest gaming market, really, in, uh, you know, uh, it's just a massive gaming market. Um, and so I think once you get another big regional player like uh, New York, those dominoes will fall quickly. Maryland will be of moderate importance. A big state in the Midwest would matter a lot. The fact that we have Michigan is important. Michigan alone hasn't carried the day. I think if you get Illinois 
and a New York next to Michigan and, uh, you know, New, the New Jersey, Pennsylvania axis, uh, then everything else begins to follow instead. You can't ignore the money. Here's the other issue, though, that propels it forward. And I don't think we've done a good enough job uh, talking about this because it's kind of invisible, much less visible than its counterpart on the sports betting side. And that is the absolute uh, just it's it's ubiquitousness of illegal online casino gaming. You can go online right now while we're on this podcast and play a casino game in your state, even if it's illegal to do so. It looks legal. You go to a website, it looks legit. It's going to take you to an offshore location. You don't, you as a consumer, you don't know what the odds are, where that money is going, how it's going to be paid back to you. Uh, and it is not just illegal, it's unregulated. There's no protection for the consumer. There's no taxation. But to pretend it's not going on, this is not a choice between should we have online gaming or not because of the concern on cannibalization or whatever, the problem gaming. It's already happening and having an impact on problem gaming that can't be controlled. And it's a massive, uh, it's a massive thing. The AGA, the American Gaming Association, estimated at, uh, I think, $300 billion or something a year uh, in their study, you know, nationally is, uh, is being lost that way. So there, there's a tremendous amount of illegal online gaming going on. We need to talk more about that. And I think that will add to that sense of momentum. Why don't you legalize something which is already happening out there illegally? Regulate it, tax it, protect the consumers. That's really the argument in a nutshell. One final question or one final topic, Howard, before we let you go. Um, let's turn our focus to New York's downstate casino selection process. We're going to be talking about land-based casinos rather than just iGaming. Um, I watched your interview on CNBC's Squawk Box. You did a great job, by the way. Uh, so I, I want to ask you, if you could go back in time, to your tenure uh, for, for, the, for the Cuomo administration, would you have written in a provision that allows more, that allows more than seven casinos in a state as, as geographically expansive as New York? Because now the supply is limited and it becomes a, a sort of a beauty contest to get the final three. Was seven enough? Was that the right number? Well, number one, I would definitely not turn the clock back and go back in time to Albany in, uh, you know, in 2013. Zero interest in doing that. But I understand the point of the hypothetical. Um, and, you know, look, I would like, you know, everybody to have, uh, you know, a, a rocket like Elon Musk, you know, to take this into space. But there are certain realities uh, in politics always. And it is the art of the compromise. Uh, the reason that there were seven casinos. Well, you're right about this, number one. You, certainly, you have a market like New York that can accommodate many more than seven casinos, although there are more because you also have the tribal casinos and all the rest of it. There's actually a lot of casinos in New York, more than what it looks like today. Uh, but there's, it's a big market. It can absorb a lot of casinos. Um, but you also have to do what's realistically was possible to do. Yeah. The upstate market is limited. So I think it was limited to four commercial casinos. You then have three uh, tribal casinos that themselves have more than one casino. So, you know, you've got a dozen casinos in upstate New York, which is, which is more than adequate for the upstate space. The downstate space is limited 
by the fact that it's very difficult to do anything in the New York City metropolitan market that involves building. And here we're talking about, at this point, building three casinos. They are multi-billion dollar facilities. If you change a street name in New York, you're going to have a protest. If you want to put a $2 billion facility in wherever it may be, in any of the boroughs, Manhattan or even Nassau, Westchester, uh, you've got to deal with the realities of communities getting community support. So I don't believe there was any way at that point the governor or the legislature could say, well, the economic market analysis shows you could have 10 casinos down here. You would not have had any casinos. Now you're going to have three. I'm sure they'll be well spaced out. There'll be a lot of investment. We're talking about multiple billions of dollars. We're talking about license fees that start at $500 million a piece. That's the cost of sitting at the table. To bid is $500 million. It'll probably be a billion dollars plus would be my guess. Uh, and so, you know, it's very lucrative for the state of New York, but it's also what's likely achievable realistically. You saw what happened with Amazon a couple of years ago. That didn't work. Uh, so you've got to proceed here and make sure you've got the political support. That's the, the big part of the game right now. Yeah, you've been part of one selection process for the upstate casinos, and, and you're familiar somewhat with the composition of the New York Gaming Facility Location Board. Sure. What do you think they ultimately look to do? Well, I mean, I have my own views, and I think... You, you yeah, know, yeah. No, I'd be curious to hear your views, casinos. for sure. You're only going to have three casinos. It's going to be a long time before you get additional casinos. You're going to need another referendum for that, so... I'm right. a big believer yeah. in legacy projects like, like yeah. you know, Las Vegas Sands, for example, win something that leaves a mark, uh, you know, like a lasting legacy. And, and you pick, pick the, the, the highest caliber gaming operators. So I have my own view on it, but that might not be anchored. Well, in I, I think you're I, I think that in terms of how the process works, if your assumption, Dan, is that the board will work in a way that selects that kind of iconic legacy project that, you know, takes gaming to a new level in a market like New York, which you know has had no gaming before. Uh, that is, you are being, you know, let's, shall we say, very idealistic in how you might think the process will unfold. Um, ultimately, and there's a step before this, but ultimately the process is purely going to be about how much do I, the state of New York, get in money and let's say secondarily jobs, et cetera, from this unit. Yeah, the design is nice. The concepts are nice. How much money do I get? And, you know, you saw this happen already with sports betting, where the interest in sports betting was give us your tax rate, whether or not this is the best system, like the 1984 run it through the lottery, probably in a lot of ways might have been the best system for everybody involved. Here it was, what are you going to pay us? 51%? Does that work economically? No. But as long as you're willing to pay us 51%, we'll take it. This is the concern about the downstate casino markets is that they're lining up to bid against each other. New York will evaluate it, number one, on the license fee amount. Number two, the amount of investment in the facility and the associated jobs, the economic development piece of it. And number three, the tax rate, because I think, as you know, you actually bid your tax rate here. So whatever those numbers are at the end of the day, that's the deciding factor. That all comes after a local community board decides whether or not you even get to that point. And that itself is a whole different process. You've got to pass the first hurdle with a local community board for each application. 
There's not one community review committee. There's going to be one for each obligation. 12 applications, you know, 12 bidders for casinos, 12 different boards go through a local process, which will take minimum of six months, perhaps longer. But I think the state is thinking six months. If you pass go and you don't get vetoed by the board, then you go to Albany for that economic analysis that I just described. So we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah. There. When do you think the, 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 the decisions are made? Are we looking at 2025? I mean, 2024 seems like so much has to happen before. I the- think we'll be sitting here a year from now and we'll be in the award portion of the process that there'll be selections will be, will have been made toward the end of last year, but more likely in the first quarter of 2025, I believe is when we'll see decisions made. Well, if, if this is your request to come back and handicap the finalists a year from now, um, you know, your, your request is accepted. We'd love to have you back a year from now, a month from now, a week from now. You've been an amazing guest. And Appreciate I thank it. you for sharing your time with us on Lawyers, Lines, and Money. This is only going to be our third episode. So we're depending, we're depending on you as a guest to sort of like, you know, lift, you know, lift our, you know, our numbers. We're going to spread, we're going to spread the word. No, this is really, I appreciate this. You guys have, it's a very smart conversation. Um, and it's hard to get in depth into some of these topics, you know, particularly uh, when we're out there with the media or even with a legislator, you know, we go to talk to lawmakers. It's a very short attention span. And so you've got to make your three points and get out. So I know, I think, you know, your listeners sorry, will appreciate the <laughs> um, your listeners will appreciate the fact that you know you, you're having depth conversation with your guests so thanks so much for having me and that was howard glazer with his i guess kind of 2024 predictions on iGaming, but really giving us a sense of how the iGaming industry is moving and what we can see in the future. If you are interested in sort of the 2024 predictions for sports betting, please check out our episode with Jeremy Kudon as we dove into the same sort of questions, the same sort of uh, you know similarities and predictions, but with the sports betting twinge. Uh, shout out to Square in the Air, our marketing partner, who helps us produce this podcast. And if you're interested in lawyers, lines, and money, please check out our socials at LLMPod on X slash Twitter. And if you want to find me, myself, or Dan, you can find us on Twitter uh, via our respective names and also on LinkedIn as well. I know I am very active on LinkedIn and I believe Dan is as well. And of course, if you also follow Dan's Twitter, you can see that he is very active on Twitter much more than myself. So thank you again for joining us on Lawyers, Lines, and Money. And with that, we will see you in the next episode. I'm a chunk punkin' And I'm a Sunshine. I got my hands on the wheel. I got gas in the tank. I got a suitcase full of money from a Luxembourg bank. We didn't stop till we got to Big Cypress. Wandered into the Legion Hall. The sign outside said Seminole.